Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. We're recording this on June 29th, 2017, and this is episode 41. Politicoast is a podcast that explores what's happening in British Columbia and across the country. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicoast Pod. Please support the show at patreon.com slash Politicoast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ian. It's just after 8.30, and right now we're recording the first segment of the show, We recorded our second segment an hour and a half ago, and we recorded the last quick take spit just before that. And the reason we did all that is so that we can give you segment one, the confidence game, confidently, because we know what's happened finally about five minutes ago. So the obvious news is that John Horgan is the new premier of British Columbia. This was announced after he was invited to the lieutenant governor's house. After Christy Clark left the lieutenant governor's house after she lost a confidence vote earlier this afternoon. But maybe let's throw it back to Monday in our little time machine and just sort of run through what exactly happened this week, because this was quite the week of jiggery pokery, as <laughs> Green MLA Sonia Firstenau described it. So on Monday, the NDP put forward a confidence motion. Uh, attached to the throne speech and that was finally voted on today but in terms of the more interesting aspects of what happened Monday was the Liberals coming out swinging with a campaign finance reform bill before the debate really had even started on the throne speech And specifically, this one would have significantly dropped the cap on personal donations down to, I believe... Well, it would have created one. Yeah. Would have gone from infinite to 2,500 and change. And as well as banned corporate and union donations, put caps on third-party spending and allowable donations to third parties too. And... You know, this has kind of been on the opposition's wish list for a long time, and they voted it down. Interestingly, this was the first time in BC legislative history that a government bill has not passed first reading. I think even in a typical minority situation, you usually pass first reading so that you can at least debate the bill. Because I think this is a bill that could have been debated. The corporate union donation bans and a lot of that stuff I'm all on board with. The exact number of the personal allowance, I would have gone lower and that be something you'd debate. I have a lot of reservations about how it was putting a lot of weird restrictions on third parties. Like it put donation limits on third parties, which is not something that's done anywhere else that I know of. You can still donate as much as you want to charities or nonprofits that are involved in election campaigns at the federal level or in other provinces. But this would have said there would have been a, you know, thousand dollar donation limit, which can really fuck with fundraisers. But we don't need to get into that debate because that bill died because the NDP and Greens got together and said on Monday, we're not playing your fucking games. And that became even more important when the Liberals introduced their second bill, or it might have been the other way around, I don't know exactly, to recognize the Green Party as an official party caucus. This would have given them extra resources, recognition, and just, it was on their wish list. And it was sort of killing that, that really crystallized that, yeah, the Greens and NDP are sort of on the same playbook this week, and they stuck to it. I think this was... 
maybe a more risky move than need to be. On one hand, it did send a very strong signal that, yeah, we're just wanting to write for the throne speech and the confidence vote. And, you know, let's get a government that has confidence before we start introducing bills. But at the same time, it's never a great look when any party votes down kind of some of their signature platform pieces. And, well, I think it's worked out for them. It might have been better to go for just kind of a delay. To, you know, the, the vote was going to happen today, regardless of what happened with these bills. And, you know, maybe some legislative procedural shenanigans to kind of push those out till Friday or whatever, in which case... You know, now you have a new government, you can introduce new bills or change them or play around with them enough that it's no longer the case where it has to be the situation where you're publicly saying, you know, no, the, those things I've campaigned on, you we're not doing them. Well, and one interesting thing I saw on Twitter because the constitutional experts this week were in hyper overdrive, they've been busy the last few weeks, but one rule in the BC legislature is you can't reintroduce the same bill in a session or substantially the same bill. I think they can get around that by proroguing. And it sounds like Horgan will just prorogue to reset before he even calls the first throne speech. But it sort of almost ties their hands a little bit that they can't just straight up introduce these bills. That's getting into the wonky procedural stuff. And another reason why it might be just an idea to throw a whole bunch of amendments on it and kind of basically rewrite the bill in committee. I guess the other thing we learned on Monday was that it was going to not be a civil everyone working together kind of week. That first question period was pretty raucous with the liberals talking up how they'd made all these concession and the opposition parties going, nope, we don't trust you, time to go. When will you get out of the way and let us govern? That just went through all week, right up until this afternoon. And I think the other thing we saw was Clark talked about letting things play out on Monday. But her version of letting the throne speech play out involved basically filibustering it, basically putting up as many MLAs to speak to it as she could to drag this out till Thursday. Because there's no reason we couldn't have had the vote on Monday. Yeah, and this was the week of a few firsts, and... I'm pretty sure, and, you know, the historical political wants out there can correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time a government has filibustered their own throne speech. This feels like something you'd see in, like, a political drama, like a House of Cards type thing, where they introduce a shitty bill that they don't actually want to pass, just to try to, like, screw with their opposition. So I wouldn't have been surprised if it has happened somewhere, but it is weird to... But on the throne speech, though? Yeah, at that that's, level. That's odd. Well, Tuesday was the day of letters. A few weeks ago, we had a different set of letters around Site C. This time, it was competing letters to the speaker, sort of asking clarification questions. So Mike DeJong, the Liberal House leader at the time, just tried to clarify the roles of the speaker and essentially wanted him to tie the hands, let's say, of a future NDP speaker, getting the sort of rulings that, no, the speaker can't vote with the government on bills, for example, to pass them into law. Basically kind of get a lot, some of the conventions kind of on record in a very formal way. And Mike Farnworth, the 
NDP's House leader, sent his own letter, basically going, what are you doing? Like, just do your job. You should just stick around, ignore their letter. We didn't get the response from Steve Thompson until Wednesday afternoon, but he basically dismissed them both by just, I think quite honestly saying, it's not my job as speaker to be your constitutional and legal expertise. You can find your own. I make the rules. And then he sort of cited what the rules were, but he said, this isn't definitive. These are conventions and I'm not providing legal advice. This is just what's been written down. So that situation got diffused, but it was kind of interesting to see the liberal play there to try to tie the hands. And it was called out pretty quickly by people like Maxwell Cameron from UBC, the political scientist who just called it blatantly political and partisan. And Andrew Weaver called it politicking in the worst, of course. And the other news that uh, came out that day is that Elections BC had been preparing for a snap election, which, you know, not surprising at all, because up until a few minutes ago, it was there was a reasonable chance that the lieutenant governor could decide that, you know what, this really does need to go back to the people of BC. And, you know, I made a point today of updated my voter registration because I'd moved since the last election, but like it's not a surprise that they were getting ready to go for an election. And, you know, that might actually pay off because as we will be getting to in a bit, you know, this isn't the most stable of governments. Yeah. Elections BC is an arm length body that can sort of do its own thing. It has its own budget that it reports independently. And so it just kind of looks at the situation and goes, there's a high probability there'll be an election. Those things take a lot of logistics to get lined up. And so they've actually been working essentially since they finished counting votes in late May to be ready to go. And it just sort of leaked out this week, which was just kind of amusing in the midst of everything else that happened. On Wednesday, that's when Horgan officially moved the confidence motion amendment to the throne speech. And other than that, in the legislature, not a lot exciting happened. What I think was more exciting or more interesting for us, at least, is the Taiyi published an interview with the BC Conservatives director, whatever title that is, where they promised to essentially come out of hiding. And they said they're going to be ready to pounce on the liberals whenever the next election comes. They're going to have a, quote, cutting edge, unquote, website. And they promised to have a new leader before the next election. Although if that election had been called today... That wouldn't have happened because it sounds like they're going to have a convention in the fall and then a leadership decision made after that. Yeah, and, you know, we've poked a lot of fun at the BC Conservatives, and I'm, you know, curious whether or not their new website will have a post-1999 vibe to it. That'd be a you know, nice improvement on their part, but I think the real question is, like, is there actually going to be any political appetite for this? You know, there's a chance that Clark may have sufficiently alienated the base with the huge flip-flop, but in light of today where they're now in opposition and will likely backtrack on their flip-flop, I, I don't see them having a huge amount of ability to kind of capitalize on the situation too much, especially because with another election, fairly likely within the next year, we're, you know... I think the kind of anyone but the NDP are going to be wanting to stay fairly close to their, you know, home turf for the Liberals at the moment. The bigger news on Wednesday, I guess, though, was that Mike DeJong, this time in his finance minister hat, released unaudited 
fiscal statement, trying to justify all the spending they'd done. And I don't know what else they were really trying to do with this other than... Well, I, I think it was to answer the questions that Throne Speech raised on, you know, okay, you guys said we didn't have that much extra cash on hand to, you know, do everything the NDB and the Dreams wanted. You know, you said that was fiscally reckless and everything. And now you've just endorsed all of their campaign promises. You know, how do you square the circle? And this was the John's attempt to do so. And the answer was this one and a half billion dollars of an extra surplus that put it up to 2.8 billion. That creates a lot of room for spending. Yeah, but it does also kind of raise the question of, you know, how do you just find $1.5 billion? It's in the mattress. It must be a very big mattress. And for perspective, the BC budget's around $50 billion, you know, give or take $5 billion, I think. You know, so this is more than 1% of the budget here that just kind of appeared since the last election. And not the most credible approach where it's, you know, suddenly this money is now available when they suddenly need to spend it. Well, and they justify it through claiming higher GDP growth than expected, significantly higher, and just a lot of extra property tax transfer tax revenue that wasn't really predicted. Of course, these are all unaudited numbers. And so knowing that the Auditor General will release her final report on this probably in the next couple of weeks. They could have really just made anything up this week, as long as it was reasonably justifiable. Then, if it was going into an election, they wouldn't really have to worry about the Auditor General. Otherwise, now it might be that this magic surplus disappears and the NDP doesn't get to do it. Otherwise, this is just a whole bunch of money that now gets to go right into all of the promises Andrew Weaver and John Horgan made. And then the final bit of news that happened on Wednesday was Clark gave this kind of odd press conference where she said if asked, she would tell the lieutenant governor that the NDP was too unstable to govern, but you know wouldn't actually provide the advice on whether or not to dissolve the legislature and call an election or you know invite someone else to form a government and... You know, if you heard a loud noise Wednesday, that was every constitutional expert in the country's head exploding at the same time, because literally that is job number one of a first minister, is to provide advice to the lieutenant governor or governor general. Yeah, our weird constitutional monarchy system, we don't have to deal with all of the intricacies until situations like this, but the job of the monarch or their representative in this day and age, when we don't chop their heads off, is to just do what the first minister says, either the prime minister or the premier, when it comes down to it. And so when the premier of BC goes, yeah, I'll, if I lose the confidence vote, I'll just go and tell her that. Well, you have to say something else. You have to say, I can't be premier anymore, number one. And here's some advice. She doesn't have to follow that advice, to be clear, because... If Clark goes, you should go to an election. She goes, well, there's someone else who could probably pull it off. And She's in her right the, to do, and that's what happened. Yeah, like, I mean, we nobody knows what's actually said in the room, but, you know, 98% chance that's what was said. But it was just such a weird, another attempt at signaling. Everyone sort of got the sense it was just her trying to cast aspersions and cast doubt once more publicly on this NDP Green Alliance and its stability and... 
it's not like the lieutenant governor lives in a hole like the groundhog and we only pull her out every year or every four years to do a ceremonial duty. She has the she has Twitter. She's not very active on it, but she has Twitter and I'm sure she was reading the news this last week. So her ultimate decision this night probably didn't take her that long, but they'd kind of drag these things out for ceremonial purposes. I was actually having to review the 2008 coalition fiasco at the federal level. And when Stephen Harper went to visit Mikhail Jean to ask for prorogation, they dragged that meeting out for two hours before he finally came out and said he got what he wanted. And what came out later was that, yeah, she actually slowed it down just so it would imbue some symbolic importance to it because it was a big decision. And if it was like five minutes, yeah, you get your way. It would look a little cheating. Oh, yeah, <laughs> although there was really only one like constitutionally valid answer to that. But it well, I disagree get... in 2008, but I think today it was pretty clear. Well, he, he hadn't lost the confidence yet. So like, And at that point, you know, when there is still a first minister who technically has the confidence at that moment, there really should be one person the governor general is listening to. I think a lot of people didn't like that, but, you know, the constitutional convention was pretty clear in the Harper case. And this case, the constitutional convention was also clear, and Clark either didn't know it or was trying to pretend like it was something else. Well, and that brings us to today, where through most of the day... It was kind of just waiting for 5.30. There was the standard procedural stuff in the legislature with probably a bigger audience than it ever happened. So when the members gave their statements, for example, like an air show that's happening in Prince George, I think, more people probably know, knew about that than had heard about it any other way. So good for them. Well, if, you, if you're going to be doing one of the most watched filibusters in recent BC history, you know, that's the sort of thing you may, might as well throw some bones to your constituencies. We then had a pretty feisty question period, as they've been, but then it went into the quote-unquote debate over this confidence motion, which was people like health, former health minister Mary Polak thanking her campaign manager, some of her donors, I guess her auto dealer came up, just like random people she could think of that filled 20 minutes. I had to turn the feed off when I was at work in the background just because it was mind-numbingly boring not even in a like soothing meditative way just like what are you fucking doing this is painful but that's what i guess a filibuster is and so that filled most of the afternoon in the legislature and i tweeted this at the time like this could be the last and it turns out it is the last speech these people will make as ministers of the crown as government officials are they proud of themselves for that like I get that you, you've you been told you have to fill this time, but write something good for it. Yeah, well, I, I think the dignity went out when they filibustered their own throne speech. So then it came down to the confidence vote at 5.30, which I couldn't listen to live. I was commuting at the time, but I heard a couple minutes later that Clark lost it, unsurprisingly. Within 20, 30 minutes, she'd visited the lieutenant governor's house, and the rest is now history. Clark was in with the lieutenant governor for quite a while. I think it was about an hour. All upset. A little bit over. Yeah, and then kind of stretch of time where not much happened. Clark, well, Clark came out, gave the, we're done talking, you know, the lieutenant governor's, you know, retired or whatever. And it's like, and, you know, she, there'll be She no left one. it really vague. It almost sounded like the lieutenant governor was going to spend the night on it and 
yeah, we'd find out tomorrow. Or, or after the long weekend. She's like, fuck it, I'm just going to enjoy Canada 150 stuff. Yeah, it, it definitely did kind of hint at that. It was, yeah, super vague. Clark didn't really take any questions and made a brief statement that, you know, she'd be around later if people were interested in her thoughts on the matter. That's just how it, you know, once the lieutenant governor made a decision. But, yeah, there just wasn't much was said or known or not much indication was given one way or the other. And finally, John Horton got a call to come to a government house, spent a little bit of time in there, and then finally came out. And, well, actually, I think he sent email blasts to everyone on the NDP mailing list before he came out and actually gave the speech. But Yeah, I guess in his press conference, he mentioned that he texted one of his staffers to, you know, hit send on the happy message, not the probably... He didn't say it this way, but I'm assuming there was a, we need a lot of money right now to fight an election kind of email ready to go. And luckily, and they didn't have to send that one. Yeah, but uh, this does kind of like ruin the show, the, you know, the show of it and kind of like the spoilers of this. And you saw the same thing when the uh, conservative leadership was announced. Like people knew that she had won because Maxime Bernier was told, was allowed back out on the floor and has a terrible poker face on it. So... Oh, John Horgan had no poker face walking out of government house today. Well, he didn't even have he barely a... had one walking in. Yeah, like, he, he had a pretty good smile on his face leaving the legislature to go over there. But uh, the general point is, you know, it'd be nice if they could have just that little bit of like, we're just going to actually wait for the big announcement and not spoil it by kind of sending the message early. A lot of the reporters on Twitter were pretty much assuming it was a done deal by the time Horgan had called. Because the lieutenant governor doesn't really have reason to speak to leaders of the opposition other than to ask them to form government. There's speculation, and I thought of it as well, that maybe she just wants to get his opinion and get a sense from him if he could create a majority of MLAs to get the confidence of the House. In fact, that is kind of what's supposed to be done is, you know, the lieutenant governor is supposed to ask if they can have the confidence of the House. And if he and said, not just pick a random person like, eh. You, you seem like you'd make a good premier, and then let them test the confidence. Well, and he's able to say yes, and at that point, it gets really dicey if the lieutenant governor goes, well, I don't believe you. Well, and actually, we should probably circle back and mention one thing that happened between the confidence vote and this, is that the speaker resigned, too, and that kind of reopened the whole question on what's going to happen the speaker going forward, and you know, there would be a reasonably plausible case that the lieutenant governor could look at the situation and be like, you know what? Once you take out the speaker, who's you know supposed to vote for the status quo, that's not actually a workable government, and that needs to be sent to the people for an election. And I figure there's you know maybe a fifteen percent chance that we did an election before the speaker resigned. Maybe 40 after, and like, you know, still more likely than not that it was going to go to getting hoard in to form a government. But there's there's a decent chance that it would have gone the other way, especially after the speaker resigned. Well, and John Horgan didn't give any hints in his brief remarks after the lieutenant governor's house. He said, and he actually said it quite honestly for how the system works the speaker is an MLA who comes forward, who is elected by the house. He said, we didn't know who would be speaker until. They were elected 
early last week, although at least the liberals would have known. In this case, it felt like they knew. And it's tough to say whether he's sort of feeling out his MLAs to get someone to step forward, or if he's really just going to, like, let it play out, and maybe someone who's interested will come forward. That's kind of... Just let it play out first, because if nobody actually takes it up, then that is an unworkable legislation. Then we're in 1908 Newfoundland again. Yeah, and in that case, it would actually probably trigger an election. So he'll probably be asking a few people, but just not publicly, and better respecting the idea that the speaker should be someone who comes forward. But in terms of transition, it sounds like as of tomorrow, the NDP is going to get access to the government documents, so anything... The Liberals haven't shredded in the last couple of weeks. Not that I think they would, but that's sort of been the long-running joke. Get handed over. And beyond so that, we don't have... The emails that were only double-deleted are now going to be able to be found. And beyond that, we don't have much of a timeline. He said he's going to try and put together a cabinet as soon as possible. He's probably already got it in his head. He's had long enough that he could basically pick who he wants. Yeah, it's been seven weeks roughly since the uh, election, so there's been time to think about these sorts of things. And I assume he'll recall the legislature this summer to at least get a throne speech going and stuff happening. I think it'd be slightly hypocritical if the liberals would do this, but I wouldn't put it past them. If it does drag out to September before he does call it back, you know, I'd, I'd fully expect them to be hammering on the, you know, your test of the office of the House, you know, this whole, you know, you have such a unstable position, you know, you you need to test the confidence. So, you know, he almost certainly will call it back before then. So I guess going forward, the question is, how long will this alliance last between the Greens and the NDP? The Greens have seemingly made their bed and like tied their knot as tight as they can to the NDP, especially after the antics, as it were, this past week. Now it's just a matter of how many of their promises, particularly proportional representation, and some of the climate plans, can they get through before this all falls apart? Yeah, and if I was weird, that's what I'd really be pushing hard to get, especially the proportional representation, getting that locked in early, because this is a very unstable situation, and if it doesn't get locked in early, and have the relevant legislation passed, uh, you know, the first or second bill... You definitely run the risk of someone catching the flu and all of a sudden you're down that one trickle vote, you lose confidence, triggers an election, and you're right back at square one. We're also going to be watching for any by-elections, of course, because if anyone dies or has to resign, that's going to radically change the numbers at this point because it's on such a balance. And I think the other thing to really watch is what's going to happen to the BC Liberals now. They've just put forward a throne speech that's largely cribbed from the now government, which I can't see them endorsing on that side of the aisle based on how bitter this last week has been. They're not suddenly going to go, oh, we were actually really committed to these ideas. We just wish you'd have agreed with us, but we want you to agree to them. Yeah, they're going to have to find a way to walk it back. And the question there is... How do they do it? Do they just do a shameless pivot back to their old positions? Well, they've already done one. Do they do a sort of... We're not against these ideas in theory. It's just you guys have the worst implementation possible, so we're not going to support any of these. Or like, what is... Realistically, I think it's you dump Clark and you get 
requests a new voice. That, and yes. that's the easiest way to get it. It puts them in a very risky situation for a couple months. And, and that's the thing is like the real question the liberals have to be asking themselves is does the current NDP Green Alliance have a shelf life of greater than or less than three to four months? Because if it's less than that, you, you don't want to be running a leadership race when the government's likely to fall and you're in an election. But if it goes any longer than that, having Clark around to just, you know, endorse all these positions makes it very hard to walk it back. And I think their best bet is probably to dump Clark and have someone else come in who can distance themselves from the throne speech. And also one thing I don't think we'll see in this is very many kind of outsiders, non-MLAs, because, you know, well, it's traditional that a very safe seat resigns. Like it's such a a balance on there. Like maybe you don't want to be running a by election if you don't have to, and I'm I'm sure that's gonna bias things towards the existing MLAs more than usual. Well one of the big problems with running a by election, first I think someone like Kevin Falcon, even though he said he doesn't want it, might put his hat in the ring even though he's outside the legislature. But if an MLA has to resign, the government gets control of when the by-election is triggered, as far as I understand. At least that's how it works at the federal level. So at that point, they don't have to trigger a by-election until sometime after the MLA has actually quit, which then, if it's a liberal resigning, that gives the NDP government a bit of breathing room. So they're going to drag that out as long as they can. They're not going to call a by-election until the last day they have to, just so they can ram through bills that are sitting on this tied shelf waiting for just that. I, I think the thing to really watch for in the next couple of weeks is what happens to the BC Liberals and Clark's leadership of it. And I imagine the knives are already coming out for her. For our next segment, we're having Stephen Carter join us to come tell us what the hell is happening with Alberta these days. Uh, for the three listeners out there who didn't also listen to the strategist before they quit the week we started, more or less, uh, Stephen Carter was one of the former hosts of, the pod, of that podcast. He's former chief of staff for, to Allison Redford and worked on the campaigns for Mayor Nainenshi of Calgary, as well as Premier Redford. Well, we're sitting down now, virtually, I guess, with Stephen Carter to get a little update from Alberta. We've done our bid on BC, or technically we will do our bid on BC because we're sort of waiting for literally anything to happen in Victoria. But in the meantime, you've been sort of off the podcast circuit for a few months now and leaving people like us and Boys in Short Pants and others to fill some big boots. So what have you been up to? Uh, I'm trying to make money. Uh, as you know, the podcast game pays exactly zero. So uh, getting out and actually running my company and uh, doing campaigns for corporations principally. Uh, campaigns in Canada just don't pay enough, guys. We should, we should go find different work. You've not been behind any new front runners for a certain leadership race? No, no, no. The... Uh, the world of politics has been way more fun just to sit and watch and uh, throw stones from the sidelines. Well, that's why we wanted to bring you on, I guess, is to let you throw some stones. For starters, <laughs> the big news, I guess, out of Alberta is there's this Jason Kenney won the progressive conservative leadership 
And now there's this tentative agreement for the United Conservative Party. Maybe you could just run us through where that's at to today. Well, I mean, right now, where it's at is that they've agreed that they will vote on it in July. I think it's July the 22nd. And they will vote on uh, the principle of it. Now, the, uh, the, the, the Progressive Conservative Party has a very easy bar to reach at 50% plus one, uh, whereas the uh, Wild Rose Party has a very difficult level to reach, and that's 75%. So what you're seeing right now is essentially a barnstorming where Jason Kenney is going around and, and trying to convince uh, Wild Rose members to uh, vote for the deal and for progressive conservative members to buy a membership in the Wild Rose Party. Uh, so the Wild Rose membership had dropped quite substantially, and now they're just tr- they're trying to get uh, they're trying to flood with new people so that they can take over the Wild Rose, the same way that they really took over the Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, this is really a federal conservative takeover of both of these parties uh, with the expectation that the federal conservatives, uh, who can do no wrong in, in Alberta, will be able to uh, kind of rule the roost uh, with a conservative agenda. So the progressive conservatives have a pretty easy bar, and given Jason Kenney's easy victory there, uh, there's probably no doubt they'll hit that 50%. But Wild Rose has a sort of history of being a bit temperamental, maybe, let's say. Uh, extremely problematic. I mean, these the, the people in the Wild Rose um, aren't people who uh, enjoy being told what to do. They, they left the governing party. They left the progressive conservatives and said, no, you don't represent our principles. So they went off and they created this Wild Rose Party. And, and I don't agree with their principles. I disagree with a lot of the things that the Wild Rose does. But you can't dispute the fact that their principles are honestly held. And the only way now that, that Jason Kenney can, can effectively take over the Wild Rose is, is to take it over with a bunch of new people. Because I don't think that the existing members, the people who were uh, you know, campaigning against the PCs for years are going to agree to the PC, Paul, you know, to, to join under one conservative uh, party again, which is what they left uh, less than 10 years ago. Now, they're out of power right now. It does kind of give a little more impetus for the Unite the Right. You don't think that's going to kind of overcome that reluctance to go back to the PCs? The, the extreme right wing in, in Alberta has never been in power. Uh, the closest it got was in 1993 when Ralph Klein did its, his cuts. But that was 1993, and, and everybody was doing cuts then. I mean, uh, balancing your budget became the thing that everybody did. The federal government did it. The federal liberals did it. So, so and then you had the, the Mike Harris PCs, the Ralph Klein PCs. Everybody balanced their budget. Uh, that's, what, that's what 1990s were all about, austerity and, and that type of piece. Um, but they weren't really even then in power. They didn't have much... Uh, as much power as they wanted. Through the 2000s, they've been out of power. The social, the social conservatives have been out of power in, in Alberta for, for basically 20 years, since 1997. Um, we haven't seen much in the way of social conservatism. And we've been moving the other way, which is, again, very similar to the rest of what the rest of Canada has been doing, embracing gay marriage, uh, you know, moving, our, moving away from social conservatism towards... Um, kind of a fiscal conservatism or a more liberal uh, kind of point of view. 
So these people have been out of power. So for them to make the choice to go back to power, they want to go back to power without compromise. And that was what made Stephen Harper so amazing when he did his particular uh, merger, is he kind of convinced the, the social conservatives that they wouldn't have to compromise and then completely compromised everything that the social conservatives wanted to see out of the federal government. And you didn't see issues like abortion uh, or gay marriage or things like that really jump to the forefront under Stephen Harper. Um, that will not be tenable in Alberta for the right wing, uh, especially the Wild Rosers. Do you see anyone of the potential leadership candidates trying to champion something like that, maybe? Or else, I guess the other flip side is, is there anyone sort of leading within the Wild Rose an organized no campaign to this merger? There are lots of people. Jeff Calloway, who's the president of the Wild Rose, has, has had vocal opposition to the way the deal has been structured. Uh, there's a lot of rumblings. What you have to understand with the uh, the folks at uh, the Wild Rose is that the constituency association volunteers, the grassroots level, is incredibly powerful. And they are so powerful that they, that it's very difficult to, um, to kind of get them all moving in one direction. Uh, that has been the problem with the Wild Rose from the beginning is that, you know, the, the grassroots party in Edmonton looks very different than the grassroots pro party in southern rural Alberta. Um, it's not dissimilar from British Columbia comparing the interior to, to Vancouver. Uh, sure, you're all British Columbians, but, you know, it's a bit different batshit crazy in both of those places. So you touched on the path to victory. How likely is it, do you think, that Jason Tenney will actually be able to execute on it and get the 75% he needs from the Wild Rose? Well, I think that that's the biggest hurdle. If they can... If they can get that, I think, and I'm putting it kind of at 50-50 right now that they're able to get to uh, the 75%. The influx of members may be just too many for the existing Wild Rosers to, to kind of push back on. Um, so this is essentially a, 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 a takeover the way that they said that when Allison Redford won the leadership in 2011, we took over the Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're taking over the Wild Rose. I think they're going to get there. I know they're going to get there with the PCs. Um, my personal dream, because I'm kind of a dick, is uh, 72% in the Wild Rose. Because then I really want to see Derek Filderbrand try and figure out if he should cross the floor given the, uh, you know, his diatribe against the floor crossers from uh, 2015. <laughs> that would just make me happy. And really, politics exists to make me happy, guys. That's 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 really what we're talking about here. Well, on election night, Scott was hoping there would be a 43-43-1 split in BC. 42-42-1. Yeah, and we were actually sitting on that for a big chunk of the night until it finally broke to the split we got. So I guess good things can happen. Bringing up Derek Vildebrandt, he's sort of expressed now his desire to lead the United Conservative Party. We also have Jason Kenney, who's obviously in the running for it. And you mentioned also Doug Schweitzer. Maybe yeah. give us the rundown on who the fuck Doug is, <laughs> whether Derek's got any chance, or if Jason's just going to run away with it now that he's flooding everyone with memberships. So I'll give you the straight up analysis first, and then I'll give you the conspiracy theory after. Uh, so, so Brian Jean is definitely running for this, this leadership. He wants to be part of it. Uh, he's, you know, the former uh, MP from Wood Buffalo who uh, 
essentially just assumed the mantle of leadership after Danielle Smith and the other MLAs crossed to Jim Prentice's progressive conservatives. And Brian Jean did better, I think, than anybody expected in the 2015 election. And frankly, he could have won the election if Jim Prentice had looked to him in the debate instead of looking to Rachel Notley. So Brian is kind of a good guy who's going to get screwed by this process because the other three, Doug Schweitzer uh, was going to seek the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party and ultimately uh, dropped out to end up on, uh, on Jason Kenney's team. And Derek Fildebrandt has been essentially the undermining force for the United, Conser United Conservative Party within the Wild Rose. He's the one who's agitating for the merger the most and undermining Brian Jean uh, as the leader. So you've got this two bigger names, Brian Jean and Jason Kenney, uh, both from federal politics. And then you've got these two lesser known names, Derek Fildebrandt and Doug Schweitzer. Schweitzer purports to be kind of more the middle of the road, the, the, the more progressive side of the progressive conservatives. Uh, personally, I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, he, you know, he came out with a let's lower taxes platform um, the other day. And, and you know, these are let's lower taxes in the lowest tax jurisdiction in Canada with a $10 billion plus deficit. Actually, I think it's $12 billion today. That's ridiculous. Um, when you have, if we had your taxation scheme, if we just took BC's taxes and dropped them into Alberta, we'd have $9 billion more in revenue. $9 billion goes a long way towards eliminating that three, you know, $12 billion deficit. So anyway, careful, you're sounding like the orange apologist. There. Don't make me don't get me started on the orange apologist. <laughs> it makes me crazy. <laughs> uh, no, but the, the, we have a fiscal problem and you guys run into it, too, mm -hmm. a little bit in British Columbia. Whenever you start relying on royalties to balance your operating budget, you really put yourself in a difficult spot. Royalties in gaming are kind of the crack cocaine of British Columbia and Alberta. And, you, you, you know, eh, not the best thing in the world. So. Um, I just think that you, you've got this Doug Schweitzer character who's, who's now going to campaign as the progressive person, but he's done nothing actually to show that he's got a progressive point of view. Derek Fildebrandt is going to campaign as the furthest right wing of everybody. He's the crazy motherfucker. So he is going to go as far to the right as possible and bring in all of those right wing people. But what I think is fascinating about this, and this is where I start to sound a little bit like a conspiracy theorist is that Doug Schweitzer and Derek Fildebrandt both worked on Jason Kenney's campaign. They've both been working on the Unite, Al the Unite Alberta project from the very first day that Jason launched it. In fact, from well before that. So you've got these two guys that ultimately, I think, are just there to fold their votes into Jason Kenney. And Jason Kenney can then say, I brought in people from the progressives through Doug Schweitzer, and I brought in people from the, the conservatives through Derek Feldebrandt, and now I have built the big tent. And so that's his play. That's what he's ultimately going to do. And so you'll see Schweitzer and Feldebrandt fold their votes into Kenny through the balloting process uh, of the leadership in, in October. With the leadership process of the yet-to-be-formed party, is it going to be a delegated convention, or is it going to be a ballot like we saw with the federal conservatives? I think it's going to be more like the federal conservatives with its 100-point piece. Um, they're still working that out a little bit. Um, one member, one vote is kind of this foundational principle in Alberta politics. Um, 
Of course, it's as easy to manipulate as any other system. So uh, everybody thinks that you know the the they'll wind up in a point system uh, to kind of balance off the strength that Kenny's got in uh, urban Calgary. So we'll see. I mean, I think that the point system has a degree of sense for them. Uh, I think that the Brian Jeans really pushed and, and demanded that. I don't think Jason Kenny has any problem with that because I, I think he knows he's going to win uh, regardless of what system they put in place. If this Derek Doug Jason secret alliance is true, or even if it's not, but Jason still has the best chance, what do you think Brian Jean needs to do to have any chance or to be in this game? Find pictures of Jason Kenny with someone who he shouldn't be with. There's basically no way that Jason Kenny loses this dude. Just go dirty. Uh, I mean, you got to go dirty. I mean, everything, every, I mean, the background files on Jason Kenny are extensive. Um, everybody's got them. Everybody knows what his, his weaknesses are. Uh, and I think the media is willing to report them. Uh, they didn't cover him as much uh, when he was running for the PC leadership. I think this United Alberta thing or uh, UCP, well, really, what's wrong with the UCP? How can conservatives be so bad at naming things? UCP? Come on. Guys, killing me right after the crap party. Like, acronyms matter. Pay attention. Um, anyways, I, I, I think that uh, Jason Kenny's got such a log on it that that Brian Jean is probably secretly hoping that this this fails so that he can retain his leadership. Well, crossing the bench, I guess first assuming the UCP gets off, led by Jason Kenny, barring any magic surprises. What do you think this means for the Notley NDP going into the next election? Well, Corey Hogan, my good friend from the Strategist Podcast, <laughs> likes to call this the uh, the war for civilization. Um, <laughs> so you've got uh, a non-existent center um, that's trying to be reconstructed, but really doesn't what doesn't have much time. And so you've got the big battle between you know the NDP and the right. And the right is basically defining itself as the really quite far right. So anybody who's not with them is against them. So people that were in the, you know, that may be inclined to vote to the right wing are being told that they're not conservative enough. And this is one of the failings of the right wing in Alberta. They almost take you, make you take a blood test. Are you conservative enough? Let's see. Test your blood. And, and they don't seem to understand that getting more people to vote for you is actually the, the objective. The NDP, on the other hand, uh, is saying, well, holy shit, if we move to the center, if we move and we become the, that kind of prairie populist NDP uh, that isn't really ideologically bound, that looks more like Rory Romano than it looks like Bob Ray, then we think that we can bring in a structure of, of government that Albertans will resonate with. And the evidence of that is the last time they were given a choice, Albertans were given the choice between Brian Jean and the Wild Rose or Rachel Motley and the NDP. And overwhelmingly, we chose the NDP. So the NDP is, is very bullish on a, a Kenny-led uh, United Conservative Party especially a Kenny-led United Conservative Party that continues to do stupid-ass things like throw punches at the middle. Tell the middle that, you know, the middle is the NDP light. Like, okay, go for it. I don't know what polling you're looking at, but 
Albertans really aren't that right wing. Uh, no more so than, than, than British Columbians are right wing. Uh, we are Canadians. We're centrist. We want a good healthcare system. We want a good education system. We want roads that we can drive on. These are things that are important. And by God, why haven't you guys done that whole four lane, uh, highway back in, you know, from Kamloops to, to the Alberta border? How long does that take? Why is it taking so long? There's a lot of mountains in the way. I'm just saying, I drive that highway a lot. I could use a little bit of help. Fair enough. But uh, uh, speaking of BC, like the classic thing to do here, if you're, well, not the NDP, is to form a big tent, not NDP party. And right now that happens to be the Liberals. We'll see how long that lasts. But why hasn't that kind of mentality sunk in in Alberta? Is this like a cultural thing? Or why is the drive to the right rather than the center? Well, because the people who have the most momentum, right? Like what what happened last time was that the center collapsed. So the Progressive Conservative Party under Ed Stelmack and and, uh, Alison Redford had moved to the center. Jim Prentice started to shift it to the right. And as he was starting to make that shift, all the weakening that had happened after 44 years of rule just collapsed all, you know, collapsed all at once. And um, everybody moved to the to the to the NDP. The, therefore, the inclination to rebuild the center isn't there because that's what just collapsed. And there are really a lot of right wingers who say things like, "The Federal Conservative Party in Alberta gets three hundred thousand votes more than the Progressive Conservatives vote used to get." And the reason for that is the Progressive Conservatives weren't right wing enough. And you know, that's a flawed analysis on many levels, um, like all the levels, really. Uh, it, it doesn't account for um, different voting. Like, you don't get anything from the federal government. Like, the federal government's not dropping uh, a, a CF-18 in your lap, right? Like, it's just, you don't get things. When you, the, the provincial government is healthcare, human services, education, post-secondary education, and all our roadway systems. That's stuff you need. So you can see that in the same way that we vote more left at the municipal level, because it turns out you have to invest money to make sure that the sewers work the right way. That's an important thing, because you actually don't want your sewers to back up. So you pay the money to make sure the sewers work. You pay the money to make sure the healthcare system works. You don't have to pay money to make sure the defense budget works or the fisheries Canada works. I mean, who the hell cares? We can vote conservative and it doesn't impact us at all. So there's different reasons and rationales for voting. The analysis that the wild rose and the right wing put forward is we got to move right wing. We'll get more votes. I see absolutely no evidence of that. So I think that, that Hogan's view that the battle of civilizations is coming and that it favors the NDP. I think that that's the right analysis. And I think that the NDP is just sitting back and laughing their asses off at the United Conservative Party. And every day that uh, Jason Kenney's followers, um, you know, buy a bunch of red hats with Make Alberta Great Again, uh, which literally they are selling those hats today. Wow, I haven't been home in a while. No, you got to look at, look at my Twitter feed. They are selling Make Alberta Great Again hats because they have the political intelligence of Nats they are dumb and they're going to do this. And, and every time they do it, Hogan just does this little victory lap 
of his office. Now, he's a nonpartisan civil servant, so he's going to be really mad that I said that. But he still does a little lap. It's just going to be our little secret. I'll bring it back to the uh, points about the centrists. There are always those kind of people who, for whatever reason, couldn't stomach the NDP, figure they're too far left, obviously won't stomach the right wing, and they always call for you know the new centrists. And there's the shell of the Liberal Party. There's the Alberta Party of one person as well. And I mm-hmm. guess they had 300 people show up in Red Deer last weekend. Do you think there's any more movement to it than that? Or is it really just sort of, you know, neophytes hoping for something that will never occur? So the way I like to put this is that there are about 5,000 activists in the Progressive Conservative Party who are now without a home, right? They have nothing to do. Jason Kenney's team took over their constituency associations. Kenney's team has taken over uh, and is really pushing people who are centrist out of the party. So those people are sitting around kind of going, okay, well, what should we do now? And what they should do now is go to a center party. The the question is which one? And Stephen Mandel, the former mayor of Edmonton, former health minister under Jim Prentice, has uh, been influential in creating this kind of move to uh, amalgamate or merge or uh, create the Alberta party to be the center option. Um, this is kind of where I've been playing a little bit, uh, not recently, but, uh, you know, in 2014, 2015, um, I was there already trying to build the Alberta party as a thing that could, that could meet the expectations of the middle centrist voter. The challenge with that is as, as the British, the BC conservative party knows getting oxygen when there's two big fish, uh, is really tough. The three-party system works well when you have enough geography to have kind of two parties that fight over here and two parties that fight over there and two parties that fight over there. The three parties all fighting together in one small little area, it hasn't worked for the BC Conservatives. It's not going to work as well for the, for the Alberta, uh, Alberta Party either. Having said that, I do think that there's a possibility that if they had a leadership, if they had something that that gave people the opportunity to participate instead of just simply saying, here we are, help us any way we can. Like, I think that that, that opportunity exists, but I'm not entirely sure they're going to be in a position to, to take advantage of it. Do you see any leaders coming forward for that besides Stephen Mandel that you mentioned? Well, I think that that's ultimately the problem. Um, there are not a tremendous number of people stepping forward into leadership positions. I suspect this is the same throughout Canada. Uh, we all bemoan the quality of our, of our elected representatives, and yet none of us are stepping up. The, 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 the quality of people that are stepping up are, are just, they're not there. And uh, for someone like myself, who, who's constantly looking for the next person uh, to try and elevate into a position of power who can actually uh, affect change throughout our society, I'm I'm pretty disappointed that uh, we're not getting as as many uh, uh, women, as many uh, people who are who have are college professors, entrepreneurs. They're just not stepping forward to serve in, in government the way we'd like them to. 
Are you going to be stepping forward anytime? Uh, I can't imagine. No, no. I, I mean, I, I step forward uh, by working behind the scenes. My, my, my political involvement is to, uh, is to create the strategies that get people elected. Well, do you have anything else you want to throw in there or else you can, you know, plug your Twitter and other things you're working on? Yeah. I mean, if people want to uh, spew hate at me, it's uh, at Carter underscore AB. If you want to throw uh, praise at me, it's uh, at Corey Hogan. Um, and if you have nothing to say at all, it's at Zane Belgi. Uh, so uh, I look forward to, to hearing uh, the interaction from uh, the people who listen to the podcast. And check out the next season of The Strategist in September, right? <laughs> yeah. I can't get Zane to do shit. He's lazy. He is just so lazy. And Corey, Corey's bound to get fired pretty soon. He's been there almost a year. So <laughs> he'll get fired pretty soon. Thanks for this. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, and for our quick takes, first up, the Supreme Court today dismissed two separate appeals of rulings on the Sightsee Dam. The Prophet River First Nation and the West Moberly First Nation had both been trying to use constitutional arguments to block construction on the Sightsee Dam, saying it's their land and they weren't properly consulted. And both had made it, set one through the BC court system, one through the federal court system. They both made it to court of appeal. Every level they seem to have lost. And now the Supreme Court has said they're not even going to hear the case. Yeah, so I think it's important here to not read too much into it. The the Supreme Court gets a lot of cases and they don't take up most of them. But, you know, with this case, you know, if all the lower courts had ruled one way, it's... Not surprising that they didn't uh, look at this anymore. Yeah, I think this means the only other barriers I can see before Site C are the review that's planned. John Horgan promised to do a number of reviews, and that's what could kill the Site C dam, because the Greens are adamantly against it, versus the BC Liberals have been very strongly for it. At this point, it almost seems like it's Clark's been trying to push it along even through this sort of caretaker position that maybe it'll be a done deal. Well, it's a multi-billion dollar, multi-year infrastructure project. It's not really a done deal until it's actually up and running. But to be fair to Clark, you can't really put something like this on hold while you sort out who's going to form government because construction delays are very costly. And especially on a project that big, if you just have all those crews idle for a while while you spend nearly two months sorting out who's going to be in government. It's, you know, that just adds a whole bunch of more costs onto the already big price tag. So, you know, there, there wasn't any new decisions there. So I, I think that's a fairly okay implementation of the caretaker convention. But uh, yeah, that we'll just have to kind of watch and see what happens to the review on it. Because the, the NDP's being against it, but not strongly against it, and I'm sure the you know blue collar union base would be happy to see the project go through. Uh, moving on to federal politics, Justin Trudeau kind of had a what it was described as a quote unquote end of the year, which I guess mostly refers to the end of the parliamentary session. It's like a school year. He's still yeah. a teacher, right? I, so. I guess so. Anyway, he he had this end of the session. I'm going to call it because it's. June, I'm not trying to call it the end of the year, press conference where he 
had some interesting responses to a few queries, particularly on electoral reform, where he said it was difficult that he killed it and you know, tried to paint it as though, no, he was always for ranked ballots all along, and it's the everyone else's fault that they didn't know that and give in to his whim on it. His comments were just sort of, nothing was surprising except that he actually verbalized them. And that's was sort of the thread through this whole thing. This is one of those times when I strongly agree with an Andrew Coyne piece. It became titled Trudeau's Petulant Tone-Deaf Performance, a Remarkable Milestone. And he highlights that and two other sort of issues Trudeau brought up as points where he's just blaming the opposition for things that are entirely his own making. So on exceeding his deficit projections, he blames the conservatives for hiding a deficit when... In Coyne's words, at least, no, you know, reputed economists were really saying Harper left us with a deficit. It was a round balance. It wasn't a big surplus for sure, but it wasn't, yeah, it, was, it wasn't the $13 billion deficit that Trudeau sort of claiming that he had to deal with. Yeah. And you don't get to preside over one of the biggest peacetime expansions of a government budget in a grown economy and get to play the it's everyone else's fault for the deficit card. And then Trudeau was also blaming the conservatives in the Senate for making the Senate so hard to deal with. And he needs to get more independent liberals in there or more independence, let's say. And he's saying that the conservatives are too partisan when I guess there's an Eric Grenier calculation that the conservatives voted against the liberals 70% of the time, which is pretty partisan. But the quote-unquote independents voted with the government over 94% of the time, which I guess 6% breaking ranks is actually pretty nonpartisan in modern partisan politics in Canada and the States, but it's still pretty ideologically coherent. Yeah, and I don't think anyone really ever saw the independent senators as truly independent. Like, you had the old cohort who were appointed... Under Martin and Trichan and all the previous liberal prime ministers who, they're liberals. You, you can hide, plaster over the red and the L's, but they're liberals and everybody knows that. So that's no surprise. And then, you know, it's not an entirely surprising thing that a liberal appointment process that was designed by the liberals had the board appointed by liberals recommended people who saw, you know, Things more or less in line with the Liberals. Well, and this decision to kick the Liberals out of the Liberal caucus in the Senate was Trudeau's. It was entirely his decision to go down this path to create the Senate in this Hydra monster way. And now he's living with the consequences and trying to blame it on others. And to bring it back to the electoral reform, it's there where he's blaming the NDP for being too stuck on proportional representation is being blaming the conservatives for being too stuck on the current system and no one wanted to compromise and take his system which also just says that's not a comp if, if everybody just does what the prime minister says that's not a compromise and the other problem is he totally ignores the fact 90 percent of the experts who showed up at the committee didn't just not recommend ranked ballots they said it was a bad system because it can create even worse and more disparate results if you're trying to get a system where the vote share matches the distribution of seats. Ranked ballots is almost the only system worse than first past the post. 
because you get these cases where everyone just kind of defaults to liberals, except maybe in an election where everyone's pissed off at the liberals, which could happen in this kind of situation when you get this arrogant. But I guess the whole point is this press conference was once again, Trudeau shooting himself in the foot one more time. It was his choice to call it. It was his choice to answer these in the words he did. It's been, I guess, a couple months since we've had him put his foot in his mouth. Maybe it was overdue. Yeah, the whole thing is just really tone deaf. Like we're getting fairly close to the halfway point on his mandate and you know, just blaming the previous government for everything, especially when it was very clearly his choice on the budget and then blaming the everyone else on the electoral form stuff. It's just one of those things that, you know, kind of what was he thinking? Is, and just the whole thing just seemed out of touch and... That, I think, is kind of the big risk for Trudeau here, if that continues. His big advantage in the last campaign was that he did a good job connecting with people, and if he's losing touch at, you know, year and a half in, or nearly two years, it's one of those things It's like, yeah, will that necessarily be there when they go back, when everyone goes back to the polls next time? Well, now he has a whole summer of kayaking, showing up at Pride events, and doing what he's good at. So perhaps that'll be his bounce. Well, and through the summer, the other person who's going to be trying to make a name for himself is Andrew Scheer. And interestingly, he came out with a sort of new policy direction, or maybe it's leaning on some of their historic positions, depending how you read it, on free trade with China. And interestingly, the Conservatives had decided, no, they're not the party of free trade anymore. They're the party of labor standards and working conditions. Well, I think it's more a case of they're not the party of free trade with China and they're latching onto a convenient talking point on that. Because this is definitely a departure from the more traditional talking point of that, you know, these sorts of trade deals, you know, are good for the economies of both sides and, you know, it leads to higher working standards typically for the you know third world country and other countries we sign this with and like the TPP for example had a whole bunch of labor standards provisions that would have raised labor standards in a bunch of the less developed countries that were signatories to that deal and you know that's the kind of typical talking point on that so it's a little interesting that Shear went this route but you know the the real thing is I don't think Shear sees China as nearly as friendly a country to have a free trade deal with, then, you know, might have made more sense from at least a more traditional line of attack to, you know, talk about how China doesn't have rule of law and secure property rights. And those sorts of things are generally bad for trade and not the sort of things you want to be uh, having on a country you're entering into a free trade deal with. And just to insert a little breaking news that doesn't make any sense at all when you're not listening to this as we're recording it, but I just got the email from John Horgan's campaign staff, obviously, titled, We Did It, sort of implying that he's met with Judith Guichon, and I'm assuming that means he's premier, but we'll talk about that fully in a bit, which you've already listened to, because that's how we're doing it. But I just wanted to squeeze in some breaking news. Yeah, I expect this to be kind of a, the China thing to be kind of a recurring theme going forward for Sheer. There's the questions over the Norsat deal and, you know, Trudeau's been making noise about a free trade deal with China and, well, they're 
big market, you know, there's maybe better places to try and get a free trade deal with first. So I could kind of see that being a kind of more persistent line of attack for sure going forward. And, you know, trying to frame them and, well, Russia too is probably, you know, the new Canadian geopolitical rivals that this government is too friendly with. I think it's just interesting to look at it on the alternate universe where Maxime Bernier had become leader of the Conservative Party. And I don't think this is the differentiate ourselves from the liberals kind of path he would have taken. He would have been on the maybe let's get even more free trade. Let's not even worry about the labor standards. Let's go full libertarian and that'll solve everything. But instead we got Harper 2.0. So we're going to get the sort of compromise policies that try to differentiate themselves from the liberals to try to make the conservatives a sellable brand. And since you brought up Harper, it is worth remembering that the Harper government had some kind of frosty moments in their relationship with China. So this isn't out of the question for the Conservative Party. And that has been Politicos. Find links to the stories mentioned in the show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and join the Politicos community at patreon.com slash And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.